Tough. Thanks, Daniel. Um, happy Lord's Day. We continue to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Wow, it looks emptier in here, partly because we have a lot of members who are missing, if you've seen the church email, but also because we have 25 more chairs here. So now we have 212 chairs here in the auditorium, which is great. Special thanks to Jim and Connie and um, Carrie and Adele, who uh, took down the soundboard and flattened it. So thanks, guys. Hope you guys aren't too sore today. Thank you for putting in the work. Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, the very last chapter of Isaiah. So if you see Jeremiah, it's the book right after Isaiah. So right before Jeremiah 1 is Isaiah 66. It's on page 662 if you have the Pew Bible. So if you have the hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you, it looks like this. Just turn to page 662 and 663, you'll find the last chapter and the last section of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. Isaiah wrote this letter, or not this letter, wrote this prophecy, these writings, a little over 700 years before Jesus was born. Before, um, and, and, and Isaiah wrote this to expose Judah's sin. So there's the northern and southern kingdom, kingdoms of, of God's people, Israel and Judah. He ministered in Judah, but during the time while Israel was there and then while Israel was exiled, um, Isaiah was ministering there in the south, exposing Judah's sins, telling them God's promises of hope, and um, how God's servant would restore Israel and eventually all nations to himself. It's a wonderful, wonderful prophecy. There's so many good things that come out here. Many Christmas prophecies. I think Peter or John Lee will be preaching on Isaiah as well uh, for the Christmas message later on in the month. But let's look at Isaiah 66, verse 18, and we'll read from verses 18 to 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Knowing their works and their thoughts, I have come to gather all nations and languages. They will come and see my glory. I will establish a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, who are archers, Tubal, Javan, and the coasts and islands far away, who have not heard about me or seen my glory. And they will proclaim my glory among the nations." They will bring all your brothers from all the nations as a gift to Yahweh on horses and chariots in litters and on mules and camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says Yahweh. Just as the Israelites bring an offering in a clean vessel to the house of Yahweh, I will also take some of them as priests and Levites, says Yahweh. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will remain before me, this is Yahweh's declaration. So your offspring and your name will remain. All humanity will come to worship me from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, says Yahweh. As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me for their worm will never die, their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all humanity. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. 
Father, we now ask that you would take these words and hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. You have told us, Lord, that um, you will look favor favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble and submissive in spirit and trembles at your word. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We remember our sin and our finitude and our weakness and our coldness of heart and how this displeases and dishonors you. We acknowledge our small perspectives and our self-centeredness. And Lord, we humble ourselves before you and we tremble now at your word. Give us food to eat. Show us your glory. Change our hearts, Lord. Shift and change the trajectory of Bethany Baptist Church as a whole. Lord, we pray that you would call some of us to be missionaries overseas, crossing a culture, crossing a geographical barrier to devote our lives for the cause of reaching the unreached language groups of the world. And we pray, Lord, that every member of this church and even the guests here would set their hearts on your global plan for your glory and for our joy. Enlarge our hearts to the great and grand cause of what you are carrying out in these days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I have good news for you today that uh, changes lives and, and can change your life or has been changing your lives. God is gathering his people to himself from all ethnic people groups to see and savor and celebrate his glory forever. That's what God's doing right now. He's doing that today. He's been doing that for years. He's been doing that for generations. And he's continuing to do that today. He's gathering people to this banquet to see and savor and celebrate his glory uh, forever. And Jesus tells us in Luke 14 a story, a parable that, that mirrors this reality. He talks about this great, this great king who has this banquet and he has this invitation and he sends his messengers out to go inv invite all of the people to come and celebrate in this banquet. And, he, and all the messengers get a lot of uh, rejections to the invitation. Some reject the invitation to the great banquet because they just bought a new piece of land. They just moved residences. And now that they move in this new place, they need to set up their residence. They need to set up their land and their crops. And so they're, I can't go to the banquet because I got to set up my residence, my place, as they just made that transitional move. Others say, no, I can't go to the banquet because I just invested in a new business. And I got to make sure that this business takes off. I got work. So no, I can't celebrate at the banquet. I don't have time to celebrate at this banquet. I have to get back to work. And then another rejection group says, I can't go. I just got married. And my marriage is important to me. And I need to focus on my wife and, and my marriage. I cannot go to the banquet. And so these messengers come back to the king and say, nobody's coming. No, no, all these people are rejecting for these reasons, for marriage, for business, for residences and moving. And then the king says, that's it. Just go invite everyone on the street, homeless, just the marginalized, just invite everyone. And whoever comes, will be, whoever comes can be invited to this banquet. And whoever said no, they will be rejected and cannot come to the banquet. And what we see here is God sending out messengers to call people to the banquet. And a lot of people will reject that message. They'll reject that invitation. They'll reject the banquet for residences, for businesses, for marriages and families. They'll reject this great banquet. Well, Ross preached last week on marriage from Ephesians 5, to 33 and did a great job. 
And he called us to orient our lives around Jesus and the church, the true marriage, so that we follow the Spirit's lead. Marriage has a way of reorienting one's life, right? It has a way of reorienting your life around the life of another. It's a human relationship that makes demands and places responsibility on another human such that your whole life is intertwined and reoriented drastically. That life undergoes a huge reorienting shift. That's not the only way your life gets reoriented though, right? If you move away for a school, I know some of you are applying to different schools and grad schools and you're applying, it could go, really go anywhere in the nation. That's a reorientation of your life, right? You, you go somewhere and you orient your life now around school and so you gotta figure out where to live, what church to go to, but it's oriented around school. Or um, a new residence, you relocate because the housing market is better in some places than here, right? Or, or in LA and you find a place based on on housing markets, to, to, and then your, your whole life, though, gets shifted around where you live, right? Where you live, that, that, that becomes the home base from where you drive to, to work, to friends, to ministry, all that stuff, uh, to church. It all gets oriented around where you live. We understand what it means to reorient our lives around things like this, right? Residences, schools, jobs, marriages, relationships. Well, there's a bigger shift that takes place in one's life. And a shift, a reorientation that's even under and more powerful and ought to be more powerful than all of these reorientations. And that is orienting your life around God and what God is doing. And what is God doing? This is the main goal of Isaiah 66 verses 18 to 24. What is God doing? Here's what God's doing. Here's the main thing that, that this, this passage is teaching. It's calling you, God is calling you to reorient your life to the God who is gathering all nations and languages to himself, okay? That's what God is calling you to do today. He's calling you to reorient your life to the God who is gathering all nations and all language groups to see his glory, to come to, to his glory and to see his glory. He wants you to, to make shifts in your life where this is the most radical, the deepest root, and the highest priority in your life and agenda. And that's what, that's what, I, that's what um, Isaiah is talking about. In Isaiah chapter two, verses two to four, he says, all, he talks about the Lord's house will be established on the Lord's mountain or the Lord's mountain uh, the, in the days, in the last days, the mountain of Yahweh's house will be established on the top of mountains and will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream into Jerusalem, will stream into this exalted mountain and many peoples will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. Notice it's the city of Jerusalem, the mountain of God and the, the, the temple, the house of God in the mountain of God that makes it holy. In Isaiah 2 verse 4, it says, God will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. So in the very beginning of Isaiah, God's gonna exalt this mountain where his house is on that mountain, the temple, and all ethnic people groups, all nations and languages will stream in to this exalted mountain. In Isaiah 56, seven and eight, God says, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Look at verse, and then he calls this a house of prayer for all nations. Look at Isaiah 66, verse 18. So Isaiah 66, 18 is the main idea, and then verses 19 to 24 is going to expand the idea, okay? Here's the main idea. It's from verse 18. Knowing their works and their thoughts, God says, I have come to what? Gather all nations and languages. That's what God is doing. I have come to gather all nations and languages. They will come and see my glory. It's all about the glory of God. 
seeing the glory of God, celebrating the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God, spreading the glory of God. It's all about God and his glory. And God is calling and not just calling, he's gathering. God himself is the agent here. He is picking and gathering people from all nations and languages to come and see his glory. That's what God is doing. And this is not a surprise if you're reading Isaiah, which is kind of in the middle of your Bible. At the very beginning of your Bible, the big problem in this world is that we are sinners, right? That we sinned against God. And we took our sin and we coordinated it as humans all to build this great tower of Babel, of Babylon, to say that we want to build a name for ourselves, not for God. And so what does God do to that tower in Genesis 11? What does he do to those people? He confuses their what? Their language and makes many languages. And now you have ethnic people groups because you've got language groups. And in the midst of this spread of judgment for their coordinated sin effort, as he disintegrates that, the very next chapter in Genesis 12, he calls Abraham and says, I will make you a great nation. And in you and in your offspring, eventually, as you read on in Genesis, all the families of the earth, all the nations will be blessed. Why, will they be, why do they need to be blessed? Because currently they are what? Cursed. They're under the curse of their own personal sin, and even as groups, they sin against God. And they are cursed before God. And God promises that he will bless them through Abraham's offspring. And that's what we're getting here in Isaiah 66. We're getting God gathering all nations through Abraham's, through this Abrahamic promise. Okay, so that's the main idea. God is gathering all nations and languages to see his glory. And then there are three ways God does it, and then there's the eventual result. The three ways God does it is in verse 19 through 22. He does it, verse 19, by establishing a sign. He says, I will establish a sign. And then in verse 19 as well, he says, I will send survivors. So he does it secondly by sending proclaimers. How does God gather? By establishing a sign. Second, by, by um, sending proclaimers. That's verse 19. And then in verse, um, verse 21, I will also take some of them as priests and Levites. He will make non-priests into priests. Okay? You guys got it? Here's God's strategy. He's gathering all nations. How's he doing it? He will do it by establishing a sign. He will do it by sending proclaimers. And he'll do it by taking non-priests and making them priests. And then the effect, the result of this work of God is verses 20, 23. Um, or yeah, 20. I, I guess it's just 24. Verse 24 is the effect of it. Actually, no, 23 and 24, yeah, is the effect of it. And so let's look at these three things God is doing. How is God gathering all nations? Number one, by, establish, by establishing a sign. Verse 19, God says, I'm gathering all nations. I will establish a sign among them. What is the sign God will establish among them? It's not clear from different commentators what the sign is. I'm going to give you my best guess. Let's start by saying this. What is the biggest sign for Christians today? If you have a symbol or a sign of, um, of, of God and Christianity, what is it? Cross is one guess. Resurrection. I heard Ross say resurrection first. That's why I had to give him at least that guess. And our church sign is the, the empty tomb. But yeah, the cross and resurrection, okay? Now, that's New Testament. That's a New Testament answer you gave. If we went to the Old Testament and said, in the Old Testament, what is the one sign, the big sign for God's covenant people under the old Israelic covenant? What is God's one major sign? What is it? The law is a guess. The tablets, not quite there, though. That's a good guess. Anyone else? Circumcision, okay, no. The temple, okay, no. 
Exodus. There it is. It's the Exodus redemption. Everything, just like we're cross-centered, always going back to the cross as the foundation of our redemption. Where's the redemption of Israel? It's in the Exodus. How many plagues? Ten plagues. And if you don't remember them all, what's the tenth one? The biggest sign of all ten. The death of the firstborn and the what? The Passover, right? The, the passing over of the firstborn of Israel. By, by a sacrificial lamb, he passes over and he kills all the firstborn of Egypt, but not the firstborn of Israel. And then we cap off this big sign of, of the Passover with them escaping Egypt. How? By the parting of the what? By the parting of the Red Sea. And as they go across on dry land. So if we had a church, if our church was... In the Old Covenant, we had a sign. It might be the parting of the Red Sea with a bunch of people going through it, right? That might, that might be a, the, the church logo or something like that. The, the, that's the main sign for Israel in the Old Testament, okay? It's the Exodus redemption. So when God says here in Isaiah 66, I will establish a sign, I think God is referring to a new Exodus. Now, the word sign here is used in Exodus 10 too, regarding the signs of Egypt, the plagues, and in Psalm 78, 43, which also refers to the signs of the Exodus, okay? But um, we don't have to go outside of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 43. So keep your finger in Isaiah 66 and go back to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verses 16 and 21 talks about this promise of a second Exodus. Listen to Isaiah 43, verse 16, going to 21. And we're going to focus in on verse 19, but listen to the whole thing. This is what Yahweh says, who makes a way in the what? Sea. What is that referring to? The parting of the third sea, right? He makes a way in the sea and a path through raging water, who brings out the chariot and horse, the army and the mighty one together. They lie down. They do not rise again. They are extinguished, put out like a wick through the water. Verse 18, do not remember the past events. Pay no attention to the things of old. Forget about the Exodus. Forget about the Red Sea. Forget about Moses and the law. Forget all that stuff. Don't pay attention to the old things. Verse 19. Why? Look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Wild animals, jackals, and ostriches will honor me because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people I formed for myself will declare my praise. Here's a promise of a second exodus. Forget the old exodus. That's old news. I'm doing something new, which is just like what was old, but I'm doing it new. And I'm going to gather my people and establish it. So I think the sign is the new exodus or the second exodus. And we pick this up in in uh, the transfiguration, remember, we talked about the transfiguration a few weeks ago when, um, I was going to say Abraham, Moses and, who was talking to Jesus? Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. And what were they talking about, according to Luke 9.31? What were they talking about? Jesus is what? His exodus, his departure. The word is departure in the CSB, but it is the word exodos in, in Greek. Okay, they're talking about Jesus' exodus. And how is he going to exit? How is he going to exit? Through the what? Through the cross and resurrection. So what is the sign? This is 700, Isaiah's talking about a sign 700 years before Jesus. But what is the sign that God is going to establish to gather all nations to himself? If I had to use a, a, a Matthaean phrase, Matthew 12, 38 to 40, I'll just read it to you. You could turn there if you're fast enough. 
But if not, just listen. Matthew 12, 38 to 40. What is this sign? Then some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. There is the sign. God will establish a second exodus. And that second exodus will be given, if you look at Isaiah 53, through the suffering servant who's going to die for sinners and depart from this world, exit from this world. But first, he would have to die on a cross, be buried, and on the third day, rise from the dead. That is the sign of Jonah. That is the sign that God promised 700 years before Jesus came and was born. 700 years before God took on human flesh and became a man. God, God promised, I will establish a sign to gather all the nations to myself. So the cross and resurrection are the great sign of God. It's the great exodus. It's the exodus that we're all part of because we're united to Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 11.10 kind of echoes this. Isaiah 11.10 says this, on that day, the root of Jesse, Jesse is David's dad. So if it's the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. So it's tied to this Davidic house that God will raise a banner, a sign. And all the people will see the banner. They'll see the sign, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he was crucified, buried on the third day, rose from the dead. That is the banner that God has put out to the nations. And when the nations see that sign, they will what? They'll come and see his glory. All right? Uh, listen to, and Jesus is the one who's doing this gathering. If you go to John 10, listen to John 10, 14 through 16. You guys know John 10, 14 and 15. I want to point out verse 16 though. John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. There's the death, there's the sign. I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must gather them also, and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock, one shepherd. You hear that? Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. He will call not just the sheep of Israel, but the sheep that are not of that fold. And they will hear his voice. They will come and gather, and there will be one sheep and one shepherd over that flock. Jesus is that good shepherd. So that's the first thing is that how does God gather the nations? By establishing the sign, and the sign is the sign of the cross and resurrection. Number two, how does God gather? Secondly, by sending proclaimers. Look at verses 19 and 20, by sending proclaimers. So we read, I will establish a sign among them. Secondly, and I will send survivors from them to the nations. So God will send survivors. What does it mean that he'll send survivors? Who is surviving? The survivors are from verse six, look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, for the Lord will execute judgment. So here's the, the hypocrites and those who are saying that they're God's people but are not. Verse 16 says of Isaiah 66, for the Lord will execute judgment on all humanity with his fiery sword and many will be what? Slain. They're going to die. God's going to kill many. But then you get to verse 19. But the survivors, he will send some who are not killed, who are not judged. Those who survive that judgment, God will take some of these survivors who are not condemned and judged. And he will send these survivors, okay? Those are the survivors. And where is he sending them? 
according to verse 19. Somebody tell me, where's he going to send these survivors? To the nations, to Tarshish, Put, Lud, Tubal, Javan, and the coast and islands far away. God will send these survivors to, to the nations. And this is really by saying Tarshish, Put, Lud, Tubal, Javan, and the coast and islands. It's basically everywhere. North, south, east, west, even to the remotest islands where there are people. God is sending his survivors to those people. And who are these people? What's characteristic about all these people in the north, in the south, in the east, in the west? What's characteristic about them? According to verse 19, these are people who have not what? They have not heard about God. They don't know about his fame. They don't know who Yahweh is, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who's Yahweh? Who is this God of Israel? Well, they've never heard of his fame, but God is sending his survivors to them who've never heard about him. They don't know about his fame, and they, have, they, don't, they haven't seen his glory. That's God, that God is sending them there to those people who are unaware now, it says, Lud, who are archers. Why does it say who are archers? I don't know exactly why. It may represent what uh, one of the better scholars on, um, on Isaiah, his name is Alec Matir, he writes that um, the archers may represent a real threat, organized, independent people who are ready to resist. If you send survivors to proclaim or to, to these places to, to tell them about the glory of God, there are archers and others who might resist them who might even persecute them, who might oppose them, who might kill some of them. But what's characteristic of all these people, whether archers or not, is that they are all unaware. And they need to hear about Yahweh. They need to see the glory of Yahweh. If they don't see his glory, if they don't hear of his glory, they are doomed to judgment. They are damned. They are condemned. And so what are these um, survivors supposed to do, according to verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. The end of verse 19, last sentence of verse 19. What will these, what will these survivors do? They will what? Proclaim my glory among the nations. This is what they're going to do. They're going to proclaim God's glory. So they're, they're sent with a message. Tell people, proclaim Yahweh is God. Proclaim that Yahweh is king. Proclaim that Yahweh is saving sinners. Proclaim that Yahweh has a suffering servant that he sent to save his people from their sins. So they are sent to proclaim because you have senders. God is a sender. And then you have people who are sent. When they are sent, what do they do? They preach. They proclaim. Don't think about preaching and proclaiming primarily about what's done behind this pulpit. This is preaching. This is a strategic moment of preaching that really feeds all the other preaching that goes on in our church. But when you proclaim Jesus, when people proclaim Jesus to other people, they are proclaiming Jesus. They are preaching Jesus. And that's what God is doing. He's not sending just pastors of the pulpit to preach behind pulpits everywhere. He's sending survivors to preach God's word to people everywhere, to the remotest islands. And when people hear God's word, what comes by hearing? Faith comes by hearing. When they believe, they call on the name of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, the Lord, will be saved. That's what God is doing. And he's doing this among those who have never seen or heard of Yahweh's glory. Without hearing, again I say, they are doomed, they are damned, they are condemned. That means that as we sit here in 2021, there are people who are being born this year who will be raised and go through their teenage years, who will get married. They'll have children, they'll have grandchildren, and then they'll die, or have great-grandchildren, and then they'll die, and then they'll, and they'll die with never hearing the gospel. There are people groups right now unreached language groups 
who will live their whole lives without anyone in their language hearing the gospel. That's been going on for generations, right? There's still 3,000 unreached language groups, at least, 3,000, around 3,000 unreached language groups that still exist today with no gospel witness. They don't know about Jesus. They haven't heard. They've never heard about his fame. They haven't seen his glory. They don't know what a cross is and why you wear a cross or why, you, why, why the cross is the symbol of some religion that's maybe one of the more dominant religions in the world. You know, a story of, of um, this is a story, John Patton, who's a missionary, and um, he went to the New Hebrides, and uh, in, the New Hebrides did not have a gospel witness, so it's near Australia, just north, um, east, I guess, of Australia, just a little bit there. There's several islands there, the New Hebrides Islands, and the gospel never came there until 1839. Think about that, until 1839. If Jesus died around 33 AD, that's 1,800 years of no one ever knowing of the gospel. Generation after generation of people dying and going to hell because they reject the revelation of God that they have according to Romans 1 and 2. They see God's glory in creation. They know God's truth in their conscience. They violate both. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they, like all of us, are damned for our sins. They're damned for their sins. So until 1839, everyone... Generation after generation, you see the little kids, little cute babies growing up, dying and going to hell for their sins, for their rebellion against God until 1839. And what happened in 1839? In 1839, John Williams and James Harris came to the island. And within minutes of them coming and going ashore, they were clubbed to death, cooked, and then eaten in the face of their ship in 1839. God sending survivors to proclaim the name of Jesus. They're immediately killed, cooked, and eaten. John Patton arrives in the New Hebrides in 1858, and he stays there for decades and sees a great revival of so many churches being established all throughout the islands with Christians everywhere to the point now where there, I mean, by the end of his lifetime, there were no cannibals left by 1907 because the gospel spread in that area. But 1,800 years of no gospel witness while churches gather, sing songs, greet each other, feel encouraged where they can go back home, which is great. But all the while we do this, there are generations of people dying without the gospel. Today, over 90% of the unreached language groups and unengaged people groups of the world are in India and Muslim-majority countries like where the Kims are going. 90% of the unreached language groups are in that area, in the 1040 window in South Asia and Central Asia. And we need to send people, just like John Patton and even John Williams and James Harris before, within minutes getting off the boat and then dying, giving their lives for Jesus. You think that isn't pleasing to God? You think God didn't use that to spread the gospel? God used that. They're in New Hebrides and even beyond. No life is wasted. No attempt for sharing the gospel is wasted. No missionary wastes their lives going to try to break ground for the gospel elsewhere. And so we even have the Kims uprooting their family with their three children to go to a, an area of the world where there are unreached language, language groups. They are going to be ministering in English, but they're setting up a church to send more missionaries and disciples to plant churches in unreached language groups in Central Asia. That's the call. Now, if you're not a Christian... 
it's very important that you understand the call here. When we talk about God sending proclaimers, what are they proclaiming? They are proclaiming the gospel message. And what is that gospel message? So if you're not a Christian, please listen up at least for this one minute. Here's the message that you need to hear that we're proclaiming all around the world. And here's what we want to get out there. So it needs to get into your ears as well. God made you. The gospel is good news and the good news is God. God is the good news. God is your creator. He is the creator. He created you in his image to know him and enjoy him and to celebrate him and to have a meaningful life with him on this earth forever. That's what God made you to do and be. But God is not only creator, God is the judge. And because we have rebelled against God and sinned against God, God will judge us for our sins. He's not just the judge, he's the executor. He will execute us for our sins. He is the one who, who meets out the penalty of eternal death for sinners for their sins. God is the creator, God is the judge, but God is also the savior. God sent his son, Jesus, God the son, to become a man. That's what we celebrate this Christmas, right? He lived the life we should have lived. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. God established the sign that his son would come and live and die for sinners and rise on the third day to be declared Lord over all. So not only is God savior, God is Lord, he's king. And God calls all of you to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. That is your only hope of escaping judgment that we all deserve. We all deserve judgment for our sins. And your only hope is God, the Savior and King, who came to die for you and rise for you. So God is telling you, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, the Messiah, God's Son, and you will be saved. If you have more questions about that. You can ask me, ask any of the members here. We'd love to explain that further to you. So notice here that these survivors are sent to proclaim. And then let's look at verse 20 now. Not only are they sent to proclaim, they, are, um, they will proclaim God's glory. What else will they do? They will bring all your brothers from the nations, from all the nations, as a gift to Yahweh on horses and chariots in litters and on mules and camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says Yahweh, just as the Israelites Bring an offering in a clean vessel to the house of Yahweh. Okay, so what do we have? What is God doing here? They're going to not only proclaim, people are going to hear the message and they're going to believe. And when they believe, what are these survivors, these messengers going to do? They're going to take these people and bring them to who? Bring them to the Lord on his holy mountain. That's what they do. We're not just saying words. We're saying the good news, but we want people to believe the good news. And when they believe the good news, we want to take them and present them as an offering to God. What does it mean to present them as an offering to God? Does that mean we need to kill them that the way that the old covenant killed offerings? Um, yes and no. No, you're not literally killing them physically, but in one sense you are killing them or they're killing themselves. So, so Paul takes the same imagery in Romans 15, that he is getting the, the Gentiles, the nations, as an offering to God. That's what he says in Romans 15. But before Romans 15 is Romans 12. And what do these people who believe in Jesus do? Romans 12, one says... Uh, I, therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a what? Living what? A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual worship, Romans 12.1. So when people share the gospel and people believe in Jesus, they become living what? Sacrifices, holy and pleasing to who? The Lord. And so that's what we do. When you share the gospel, when we send survivors, when God sends survivors, right, these proclaimers to Central Asia like the Kims, and they go, when they share the gospel and people believe in Jesus, or they repent from their sins and trust in Jesus, what happens? They become living sacrifices, holy and pleasing, an offering to the Lord. 
You are an offering to the Lord. If you're a Christian, all of us, because God has saved us through other people, sharing the gospel with us, they have brought us to Mount, to Mount Zion, to the holy mountain. Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24 talks about this, the heavenly Jerusalem, that the saints even now, right now, are gathered around Jesus and around the holy heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, right now spiritually. That's what happens. Share the gospel, you bring them to Mount Zion. And then one day, Revelation 21 and 22, when, God, when Jesus returns, there will be a new earth, the new Jerusalem, the final heavenly Jerusalem, and we will all gather there to celebrate forever. But what are the survivors doing? They're bringing in an offering. That's what we're doing. We're bringing in offerings. God sends people out. They share the gospel. They bring them to God as a holy and pleasing offering to the Lord. Because isn't God worthy of this worship? Isn't he worthy of this praise? Who else should get their allegiance? Who else should get their love? Who else deserves their devotion? Who else or what else should they reorient their lives around? If not God. He's the only one worthy. Is he not? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God who deserves everyone's worship. Not just English speakers, but all language groups. And so we are sent, God sends messengers to tell people, to bring people to this one true, loving, glorious, gracious God. And so they bring Gentiles to God. And they bring them to the heavenly, holy mountain, the heavenly Jerusalem, and even to the Lord's house. Okay, so that's the second thing. So how is God gathering people? He's doing it by establishing a sign. Secondly, he's doing it by sending proclaimers. And thirdly, God is gathering all nations to see his glory by making non-priests into priests. That's verses 21 and 22. Look at verses 21 and 22. So this is the, the third I will. It's really the fourth I will. I will gather, but then the three I wills are verse 19, I will establish. Uh, verse 19 again, I will send. And then verse 21, I will also take. I will also take some of them as priests and Levites, says the Lord. So what is God going to do? He's going to take some of these Gentiles. As, as the survivors go and proclaim the gospel and people come to know this God, he's going to take some of these converts and make them priests and Levites. Now, in Isaiah 61, God talks about, now, how many tribes of Israel are there? Twelve. Let's just do some Bible review here. There are 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Levi is one of the 12 tribes. So those who are from Levi are the Levites. Who are the priests in this old covenant structure, this old Israelic covenant structure? Who are the priests? The what? The sons of Aaron. And Aaron is from the tribe of Levi. So, so you have all the Levites who are descendants of Levi who are Levites. And they're all supposed to take care of the temple and the, the tabernacle. But there are only one family of them are priests. And they are all from the sons of Aaron. So if you're, from a, if you're a son of Aaron, you are in a priestly line. Not all Levites are priests, and not all Israelites are Levites. You see how there's even tiers here? So you have all Israel who's, who's holy to God, and then within Israel, you have one tribe, Levites. And then within the one tribe, you have one house, Aaron. And what God is saying here is, I'm going to take some, uh, or in Isaiah 61, 6, he's saying, I'm going to take some of the Israel, I'm going to take Israel and make them all priests. And you're like, whoa, Wait, there's supposed to be this whole 12 tribe thing. What is, what's going on here? No, God's going to take all of Israel and make them priests. And now he extends it here in Isaiah 66 to say, not only Israelites, even Gentiles. I'm going to take some Gentiles who are not even Israel, Israeli. They're not Israelite. I'm going to take some of them and make them Levites and priests. Wow. God's going to make them holy. Now, why does it say, sorry about that. Why does it say, thanks, John. 
why does it say I'm going to take some of them as priests and Levites and not all of them? I mean, First um, Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, talking about us, which is fulfilling Exodus 19, 6, where Israel is a royal priesthood. So I get that all of us are royal priests. Uh, we're part of a royal priesthood, but it doesn't just say that we're all part of a royal priesthood. God is saying here, I will take them and make them priests. Why does it say some priests and not all priests? The answer is because when you're reading Old Testament prophecy, the Old Testament prophetic promises to the future are given in Old Covenant structures. Okay? Does that make sense? In Old Covenant structures. So, for example, in Isaiah, I think it's in Isaiah, it talks about when they're in the new heavens and the new earth, they're going to live a really long time, like hundreds of years, they're going to get old. They're going to get really, really old. Now, where is that fulfilled? The new, where, where is it fulfilled that we're going to be living a long time on the new earth? Where do you see that in the Bible? Revelation, right? But we're not going to get old. And we're not going to be raising children in that regard, right? But, but when Isaiah is making the promise, he's giving that promise in old covenant structures of thought so they can understand it in that time, though it's going to be fulfilled in a better way, in a consistent way, but in a, in a more expanded and specific way than given the old covenant promise. Does that make sense? So he gives an old covenant promise with an old covenant uh, framework or structure for us to think about. And so here, the old covenant structure is some Levites and some priests. But it means that all will be made priests. And that, that's why Revelation 5, 9, and I'll give you a verse for it. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 says this. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you, lamb, were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and you made them priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. There it is. Revelation 5.10, the lamb dies for people from every language and tribe, and he makes them a kingdom, and he makes them priests. That's what God said he would do. He would take Gentiles who are unclean and not fit to be dwelling in the house of God. God would take them all the way from Gentiles, not just make them Israelites, not just make them Levites, make them priests who dwell in the house of Yahweh. That's what he makes Gentiles, and God is doing that among the Gentiles. Look at verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will remain before me, they will remain forever. This is the Lord's declaration. So, Israel, and so, you priests, your offspring and your name will remain. This is wonderful. Your offspring will remain. One of the greatest fears parents have is for their uh, children's safety and flourishing, right? We want our offspring to remain. We want them to flourish. We want them to do well. Well, here, the offspring remains not just temporarily to do well in this life and then die. They will remain before God, just like the new heavens and the new earth remain before God forever. Now, this is not referring, again, this old covenant structure about your offspring. But even in the new covenant, it's not just, it's not primarily or even biological offspring. It's not biological offspring at the end of the day. It's spiritual offspring, right? In Matthew 28, 20, 19 and 20, go therefore and disciple all nations um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. What is God doing there? He is telling us to go make spiritual offspring, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And so the, the people that you lead to Christ, including, hopefully, Lord willing, right, as we pray for in our church, our biological offspring, but the people we lead to the Lord will remain before the Lord's presence for how long? Forever, just like the new heavens and new earth. Not only will our offspring remain, but your name will remain. 
They will have Yahweh's name and they will be remembered. Their names will be remembered forever and ever. Now, how many of you know Jerry Presley? Raise your hand. Look around. Okay, that's not even half. Five years from now, if I ask that same question, it'll be even less and less and less. And she will be forgotten in some ways by Bethany Baptist Church. And so will you. And so will I. We will be forgotten. As, as generations roll on, we will eventually be forgotten. How many of you know, Barbara can't answer this, but how many of you know the name of your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents? Okay, some of you do, but not a lot of you do, right? We're gonna be forgotten even by our own, by our own offspring. A few generations from now, we'll be forgotten. But this text says you won't be forgotten. Your name will remain forever and ever. You'll be temporarily forgotten. You'll be forgotten for the rest of, the, for the rest of this earthly life, right? And as the generations move on. But we will celebrate in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you are in Christ, you will, your name will remain forever and ever and ever. You won't be forgotten in the, at the end of the day. No one will. And that's what God's doing. He's gathering and he's taking these non-priests, making them priests. They will remain forever. Their offspring will remain forever. Their names will remain forever because that's what God does when he gathers the nations. Okay? Just think about how God has converted you, how God brought you to himself and gathered you and given you a name. I have here, I was going to share, uh, maybe I'll just say briefly, Heber and I, and uh, we're in our accountability group, and we are sharing our testimonies. So Heber was sharing his testimony about how even though he knew the gospel, it took him a while to get the gospel, but through a sermon online, God used it to, um, to have him repent from his sins and trust in Jesus. But that was also with the nurture of church family and just Christians. And then he finds a church and continues to grow as a priest of God doing his work until he dies, and then he will rise with Christ, and his name will remain forever and ever. And he will be established forever. And so will you if you're a Christian. That's what God does with no names like us. He establishes us forever. Okay, so to recap, how is God gathering? Three things. Okay, uh, Gentiles, you're gathered. This is the good news. God gathers the nations, right, the languages. Um, how does he do it? By establishing a sign, the cross and resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, by sending proclaimers. And thirdly, by taking you and making you what? Priests as a pleasing offering to him. That's what God is doing. That's the good news. We have a gathering God. I want you to see the glory of God's gathering, his, act, his action of gathering. I want you to see the glory there. Now, what's the end result of this? Look at the last two verses here, verses 23 and 24. What's the result of God gathering all ethnic people groups? Two results. Number one, in verse 23, perpetual worship. In number two, and number two in verse 24, perpetual recognition. So there's two things, two results of this gathering, perpetual worship. What does verse 23 say? All humanity will come to what? Worship me from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, says the Lord. There will be worship, worshiping Yahweh forever. Joy, celebration, love, valuing, singing, resting, deepening intimacy with God, sharing stories with God, asking questions, raising up new ideas and thinking and learning about God forever and ever. It will be perpetual worship from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. What does it mean new moon to new moon? New moon. Month after month, right? That's what a month, that's, month is named after moon, right? Month after month, week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, year after year, decade after decade, we will be joyfully, wonderfully, thrillingly, and increasingly worshiping God forever and ever and ever. People from every tribe, nation, language, and people. 
this is um, this this new moon and Sabbath is really what they're supposed to do in the old in the old covenant to remember God. So Isaiah one thirteen says, "Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me." Today we'd say, "Stop coming to your Sunday gatherings. Stop singing these songs. Stop preaching these sermons. Stop taking this Lord's supper. It's detestable to me." Isaiah one thirteen. I'll continue. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. They were hypocrites. Every new moon, there's a festival to remember Yahweh. Every Sabbath, there was a Sabbath to remember Yahweh. And God was, was disgusted with their gatherings because they were hypocrites, tolerating iniquity in their lives while they're gathering to, to feast and celebrate Yahweh. And here, at the end, it won't be hypocritical worship. It'll be true worship. It'll be genuine worship. Every new moon and Sabbath into eternity. Okay, so there's perpetual worship, and then there's perpetual recognition. Last verse here, verse 24, perpetual recognition. As they leave, so here they, as they leave to the new, as they leave to the heavenly Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, what will they see on their way out? Verse 24, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. They're going to see dead bodies. For their worm will never die, their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all humanity. The dead rebels. In Isaiah 1, verses 2 and 3, it talks about the, how Israel has rebelled against God, even though um, an ox knows its owner, a donkey knows its master, Israel does not know their God. And, God, and they have rebelled against God by not knowing him. What's the opposite of rebelling? Here it says those who have rebelled against God. That's in verse 24. Verse, verse um, 2 is the opposite of rebelling against God. So if you're not a rebel, what are you? Isaiah 66, 2. I will look favorably on this kind of person. I will, um, one who is humble, broken in spirit, and trembles at my word. Those are the ones who are not rebellious against God. But those who are rebellious, who rebelled against God and his word, is verse 3 and 4 of Isaiah 66. A person who slaughters an ox and kills, another kills a person. One person sacrifices a lamb, another breaks a dog's neck. One person offers a grain offering, another offers pig's blood. One person offers incense, another praises an idol. So it's inconsistent and hypocritical. All these have chosen their ways and delight in their abhorrent practices. So I will choose their punishment. I will bring on them what they dread because I called and no one answered. I spoke and they did not listen. They did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. That's rebellion against God. Not listening to God. Choosing things against God. And the penalty here is that they're dead bodies slain by God in a place where the worm will never die and the fire will never go out. What is that place where the worm will never die and the fire will never go out? Jesus talked about this in Mark chapter 9. So I'm turning to Mark 9, 43 to 48. Here's what Jesus says, Mark 9. If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter a life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter a life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 66, 24 right here. What is he saying? Where is this place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched? Where? Hell. And if you read Revelation 22, 10 through 15 about the great white throne judgment, all these people will be raised from the dead They'll be judged before God, and he'll take this place of the dead, Hades, and he will throw them and all of it into the lake of fire. 
to burn in the lake of fire, the place prepared for the dragon, Satan, and the beasts, and the, the, the fallen angels, and now for all of those who are damned before God, they will burn in hell forever and ever and ever. Burn in hell. Eternal fire. Eternal worms that cannot die. This imagery is not lighter than the reality. This imagery is very mild compared to the reality. When the Bible talks about hell, it's grasping for human language to feel the weight of what it really means for someone to burn in hell under God's wrath forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. ever. This is the horror of humanity. And God has this set up so that the people who are marching to the holy mountain to worship God would look at the dead bodies and be horrified and glorify God for his mercy. That's what Romans 9, 23 and 24 say. Why does God prepare vessels of wrath, prepare for destruction? To make known the riches of his mercy on vessels of mercy. So what's one reason for hell? Here's one reason for hell. So that those who are gathered, those who become priests, those who are the offspring, those who are the offering to the Lord, those that God God has gathered from all nations, as they go to worship God, they will look at hell. They will look at the lake of fire and see those burning and under God's judgment and say, God, I deserve to be there. We deserve to be there. My people group deserves to be there. And the only reason I'm not there is your mercy. I'm not better than them. I deserve to be there. We deserve to be there. And here we are worshiping you at your mountain forever and ever. And you will remember us forever. You make us priests and kings. And we get to celebrate for eternity. Wow. I deserve to be there. We all do. And as we gather, we will see on the way out and be recognizing afresh the infinite mercy of God on sinners like you and me. So those are the two results, perpetual worship and perpetual recognition of God gathering the nations. Okay, let me close with some application now to apply all this. Application, number one, behold your God, the God who gathers. Stare at this God and worship him because he gathers sinners like you and I from all language groups to himself. This is the God who gathers all people. God establishes a sign. He sends his son to die and rise. He raises from the dead. He exalts his son. He sends his church. He sends missionaries. He sent them to you. He's sending you. Glorify God for doing that. He's winning an offering to himself. He will send his son again. We will celebrate on the new earth. There will be a final judgment. People will be thrown into the lake of fire. We will be on the new heavens and new earth, which is also the new Jerusalem, which is also the temple. We'll be there forever and ever, increasingly enjoying God. This is a God who gathers sinners. Worship this God. And secondly, participate in this gathering work. God does not call you to be a spectator. He makes non-priests into what? Priests. And priests mediate God's blessing to those who who don't have God's blessing. That's what priests do. He sends survivors to proclaim God. That's what he's sending you to do. So so participate in God's gathering work. And here's um, four ways to do it. You can go, you can pray, you can send, and you can build. You can go, you can pray, you can send, and you can build. Go. Go to the mission field. 
Some of you need to change your life, your life trajectory and your career, your retirement plans, the rest of your career, the second half of your career, the second two-thirds of your career, those of you who are beginning a career, those who are still thinking about a career because you're still in high school. You need to think about the fact that God might be calling you to go to the unreached language groups or closer to the front line like the Kims who are going to be establishing a church there to go to the unreached language groups. Some of us need to stop living here in Los Angeles the way John Patton left to go to the New Hebrides to establish a gospel witness there. Go to the mission field. That's number one. You need to think about that this week. Number two, pray. This week is our week of prayer. Starting tonight in our evening gathering, we're going to pray. Monday, we're going to pray. Tuesday, every day this week, we're going to get on Zoom at 7 o'clock. We're going to pray. And we're going to pray for missions. We'll pray for one unreached language group, unreached people group. We'll pray for the IMB prayer request. We'll hear someone share their testimony briefly, five minutes or less, of how they got converted. So you can just get to know other church members on Zoom, okay? We're going to do that. And then we're going to pray for our church to be more missions-minded and for some of us to go. Okay, those are the three things we're going to pray about. We'll hear testimony. We're going to pray for the IMB prayer request, pray for an unreached language group or people group, and then we're going to pray for our church and for some of our people to go. We're going to pray that seven times or eight times this week from Sunday to Sunday. So plan, if you can, this week to be on those Zoom calls if you're a member of this church. We're going to pray. But there's something else I want you to pray. And kids, I want you to pray too. Kids, I want you to pray um, that God would lead you to, to have a heart for the nations. And for the church family, I want you to pray. Kids, you can pray this too. I want everyone here to pray this week. Francis and I prayed it last night for the first time this year. I want you to pray whether God will send you to the mission field. So Francis and I prayed last night, God, is it time for us to leave BBC? Have we done our, have we done our time here? Is it our, is it our time now to leave this church and go to the nations? Lord, I was praying, do you want me to pastor an English-speaking church overseas somewhere that's closer to the front lines? Is that what you're calling our family to do? Or are you calling us to actually go to the unreached language group and learn a language and do that? What are you calling us to do, Lord? This week, your lives are a blank check. Every, every day, your lives are a blank check. But this week, more than any other week, your lives are a blank check. Sign it. God, here it is. Write the amount. Write the destination. Take my life, Lord. Take our lives, if you're married, and show us what to do with our lives. Maybe you could do your job overseas and build up a church there for the glory of God rather than doing it here where there's so many gospel witnesses everywhere. So pray that this week. And next week, I'm gonna ask some of you to stand. I'm gonna ask for three different groups next week to stand. One, those who think God is calling them to go. Two, those who are, who are wanting the church to pray for them because they wanna really think about it and are seriously considering the missionary call. And then third, I want you to stand if you are devoting your life to building up the church here for the sake of the nations, okay? So three groups next week, I'm gonna call on you to stand and see where you guys are at. But I want you to be praying all week before next Sunday when Brooks Buser, who leads a missions organization, will come here and preach. The third thing we need to do, so we need to go, we need to pray. Third, we need to send. Send our members, send loved ones, send money, send short-term mission teams, send pastors. We need to be ascending church. We must send our members to gospelize and disciple and establish churches and spread the gospel through more disciples and churches in a different language group and geographical location. This is December, it's Christmas giving. Give money to missions. If you're gonna send, send money. 
I already told you there's a few ways to do it. You can designate it here on your envelope. You can go online and give to Reaching and Teaching. You can give to IMB Central Asia. But give, send money for the sake of the cause. And lastly, last application, not only go, pray, and send, but fourth, stabilize. Stabilize your local church. I realize not all of you are members of this local church. So I'm talking if you're not part of this local church, stabilize your local church. Stabilize your local church because your local church is the mechanism and it's our mechanism to send and support missionaries to the unreached language groups of the world. Who's sending them? Who's financially supporting them? Who's praying for them? Who's raising them up and sending them out? The local church is here. So what can you do for the sake of global missions? Be a good church member. Build up a healthy church. Be responsible for each other's discipleship. Be an engaged member. Care for each other. Influence each other towards Jesus in discipleship. Gospelize each other. Attend the gatherings. Recognize other members through the members' meetings. And support the church financially with your time, with your money. Support the leadership. Be a good, normal, healthy church member. And specifically, gospelize and disciple other people. All right, so I'm calling you church members. If you're going to stabilize this local church for the sake of the mission out there, invest time into a neighbor this month, a non-Christian neighbor. I want you to think of a neighbor and invest time with that person. I want you to invest time into a BBC member for their growth in Christ. And brothers, some of you are all active and not passive. Some of you are passive and not active. Passive is you're receiving ministry from other members. Doesn't it feel good to be ministered to by other members of this church? It's really good. Thank you for doing that. It's a blessing to be ministered to by other members. It's also a blessing to, for you to take the initiative to reach out to other members. But some of you are only active and you never let anyone know your needs and your burdens. You need to learn how to be passive and receive. Some of you are only passive and you only talk to people when they talk to you first. When they say, hey, can we hang out? You never, you never initiate for someone to hang out with you. You never initiate a meal. You, ever, you never initiate coffee. Well, you need to, you need to do both. If you're going to stabilize this church and invest in fellow members, you need to receive from other members as you share your burdens. You also need to be the one to say, hey, can we hang out? Hey, how are you doing? Hey, can I pray for you tonight? What are some of your prayer requests? All right. And then the third thing here about gospelizing and discipling is join a city group. We're going to talk about city groups. Uh, we're talking about city groups on Sunday nights. And whether you join a city group or not, it's not city group is not the main thing. Join in with other BBC members to engage non-Christians. You need to engage non-Christians regularly. City groups are a structured way of doing it, but you could go outside the structure and find another way to do it. The point is reach out to non-Christians. And maybe, maybe we should have a city group that's actually focused on an unreached people group that has members of that people group here in LA. That, would, that might be worth doing. Maybe some of you might want to be part of or lead a city group that focuses on an unreached people group who live here in LA so that they could reach out to their relatives and maybe they become the missionaries to go to that unreached language group because they already speak the language and they're here in LA. That might be good for some of you. Okay, so to conclude, God is gathering people from all ethnic people groups of the world, and he's calling each of you to participate in this mission. So give sacrificially and joyfully this month to Global Missions and pray with us this week on Zoom and tonight, Sunday night, tonight, Sunday night, next Sunday. If you don't go to Sunday night gatherings, here's the one Sunday night to come or two Sunday nights to come. This Sunday, next Sunday. Come to those two Sunday nights because we're praying for missions. So if you're like, I never come on Sunday night and I don't know when to come. You don't have to come every week, but come this week. Come tonight and come next Sunday. If we don't reorient our lives around God's mission, we will stray from the mission and we will lose precious time and opportunity. We'll get caught up with our marriages and our families or our businesses or our residences. And we're gonna lose the big orientation that God is gathering people from all language groups to himself. Let's pray. Father, take these many words and mobilize us for your global cause.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Take